Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Because, now I'm going to cry, I'm just so grateful that you all have come to my little soiree. <laughs> um, 18 years in the making, I know many of you have been waiting for a very, very long time to find out exactly what this journey is, and now it's all available. And I can't wait to hear everyone's book report, because really I'm a teacher. <laughs> And I just, I want feedback, so I look forward to that. I want to start out by saying that there's no better place for me to be having my launch than Skylight Books. I have a long, long, I have a long, long, long history with this bookstore that many of you know since pre-Skylight when it was actually Chatterton's. But my relationship was sealed when our mama cat birthed four babies on top of me in the middle of the night. And one of them turned out to be Franny, who has been the skylight kitty here for 10 years. So we are forever. So we are. I just keep seeing new people. So we are forever bonded, me and this fabulous, fabulous bookstore. So, some of you have heard little bits and pieces about Guesthouse for Ganesha. Just to give you a brief overview, it's narrated by the Hindu god Ganesha, who journeys with a young Jewish woman pre-World War II, during World War II, and after when she goes to India. Ganesha is both narrator and character, and so the novel is written in both third person and first person. And I'm going to read two excerpts from it this evening. Uh, so you get a taste of Esther, who's my female protagonist, and Ganesha. So you'll get a taste of the third person and first person. And to start off this evening, I can't tell you how absolutely honored and touched I am that Malati Iyengar of Rangoli Dance Company has agreed to do a puja which is a ceremony, a blessing to Lord Ganesha, um, blessing the book, blessing the journey, blessing Skylight, and all of it. So um, we'll start out with Malati's service, and right after that, I'm going to begin reading, okay? And then I'll read two parts, and uh, then we'll get into a Q&A. So thank you. I'm
शुक्लाम वरदराम विष्णुम चशिवरनम चदरभुजम प्रसन्नमधरम ज्ञाये सर्वविज्ञापशांतये ओम गणानाद्वा गणमधिम हवामये कविम कविनाम उपमश्चवसमम जेष्ठराजम ब्रह्मनाम ब्रह्मनस्पदे एनश्वन्नादि विशिरसादनम ओम तत्पुरुषाविद्महे वक्रदुंडायरीमहि तन्नोदंते प्रजादियात ओम तत्पुरुषाविद्महे वक्रदुंडायरीमहि तन्नोदंते प्रजादियात ओम नमो सर्वशनाविद्महे महाज्वालायरीमहि तन्नोचक्रप्रजादियात ओम नमो सर्वशनाविद्महे महाज्वालायरीमहि तन्नोचक्रप्रजादियात अस्मत्गुरुभ्योनमा अस्मत्परमगुरुभ्योनमा अस्मत्सर्वगुरुपरंप्रायेनमा श्रीमदे रामायणमा श्रीमदे वेदांतदेशगायनमा श्रीपरांप्रिदासायनमा श्रीमद्यामलोनेनमा श्रीरामविश्वायनमा श्रीमदे घटकोपायनमा श्रीमदे विशुक्षेनायनमा श्रीयेनमा श्रीद्रायनमा अस्मत्देशिकमस्मदीव परमाचार्यांशेशानगुरुन श्रीमल्लक्ष्मणयोगी पुंगवा महापूर्णमणिम्यावनम् रामं पद्मग्रोचनं मनिवरं नाथं शरद्वेहिं सेनेशं श्रीयं इंद्राजाचरं नारायणं समश्रीयं श्रीरंगमंगलनिधिं करुणान्यवासं श्रीविंकटाद्दिशिक्राल्यकालमेगं श्रीअस्तिशेयचिक्रोजलपार्यादं श्रीशम्नमामेक्षिरसाम यदुशेलदीपं मंगलं भगवान् विष्णु मंगलं मधुसूदना मंगलं पुण्यिकाच्छा मंगलं गर्दुया मंगलं कोसलेन्द्राये महानीय गुणाभिये चक्रवर्तिनो जाये सार्वभौमाय मंगलं वेदेशांतिवेद्याये मेघश्यावलमोदये तुम्साम्मोहनरूपे पुण्यश्लोकाये मंगलं तद्विष्टो परमपदं सदा पश्चिन्तिसुवरया दिव्याचक्रोदं तद्विप्रोजोगन्यो याद्रुवासस्यम्यते
Go ahead. I just wanted to very briefly share with you what I did. Um, when we ring the bell, it is to wake up the Lord and wake up the people, saying that there is some event happening. And that sound is supposed to resemble the sound of the, the first sound that was created in this world, called the Om. And um, then uh, we offered the sacred, all those turmeric powder, and they were made in all those powders, and then the flowers. And the offering was the fruit and some nuts to the Lord. And then we had the incense, asking for an auspicious beginning and the continuation of success to Judith and her book and all her ventures. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Dance, he whispered ever so softly. Dance without memory of your heart being sundered. Dance, never knowing sorrow and pain ever kissed your lips. Move, feel again, recapture yourself, who you were at three when your song was pure and electric with possibilities. Come, dance with me. He peered down at her with eyes the color of fawn and looked clearly into her soul. His, chunk, his trunk gently touched her right cheek. With his one free hand, he carefully lifted her out of bed. Esther took no notice that her linens and quilt were thoroughly soaked or that instead of her muslin nightdress, she was wearing layer upon layer of diaphanous silk. She floated into his four arms and let him guide her around the room. Though it was no more than the size of a small closet, somehow there was space enough for leaps and twirls. To an outsider's eyes, they made an awkward and ungainly pair. She, barely five feet tall and slender as a rod, he, towering at eight feet with a voluminous belly and extraordinary countenance. Still, their partnership was graceful and fluid, and the music, an interweaving of bells, horn, tablas, and sitar, seamlessly melded with their steps as though the composition had been created solely for this dance. Esther felt safe. A feeling long forgotten. It was as though she were once again in her mother's womb, floating in warmth. When the cabin door blew open, they danced onto the deck, now more than ever moving to the motion of the waves not far below. They journeyed in contented silence, words unessential. This was the liberation of movement, the release of the past, and all that had held her captive. After some time, dancing in great abandon, Esther even lost sight of her partner as she whirled and twirled without benefit of support. It was a beautiful, crisp fall night, the first calm sea experience since leaving port. The four days prior had been stormy with giant swells, and most of the passengers had severe seasickness. But tonight the sea, and with it the ship, were at peace and gliding easily across the deep. A young couple decided to take advantage of the night's tranquility and went for a stroll around the deck. They came on a barefoot Esther, spinning and leaping, completely oblivious to her surroundings. Fearful she would soar over the railing, the man grabbed her, and immediately Esther began to mumble, incoherently it seemed, about a man, about an elephant, about freedom. My God, he yelled, she's burning up, get the doctor. Within minutes, Esther was back in her bed, covered in cloths filled with ice, the ship's doctor forced a few pills down her throat. 
The pure bliss of the past few hours dissipated. Her teeth chattered without control and her body shook violently. Soon her being began to relax as the drugs seeped into her bloodstream, their power taking dominance over that which had brought her to such a state of joy. A tear formed in one eye and slowly rode the curves of her face before she drifted into a deep sleep and whispered to Deus. Chapter 1. Esther Grunspan arrived in Kern with a hardened heart as her sole luggage. An uncommonly sweltering September day was her welcome, as well as a language that sounded like her native Yiddish, yet foreign in structure and comprehension. A formidable determination guided her actions. Stancia! Ikdafa Stancia! Lodging. I need lodging, Esther demanded of the first person in uniform that crossed her path. Wu kin ik opsun Stancia! Where can I find lodging? Her articulation was clear and direct, emphatic. Quizzical, the man's eyes skimmed this plain-faced young woman from her faded long-sleeved cotton frock with one rounded collar to her scuff laced-up shoes. Small in stature, with thick blonde hair pulled away from her face in a tight bun, she was unadorned and clearly out of place. Was? Ich I don't understand you, he said, waving her away and pointing towards the terminal, train terminal. Without a note of thanks, Esther headed in the direction he indicated. Once inside the terminal, she strode through the cavernous building to consider every booth, kiosk, and stand until she found a corner counter with a large sign overhead announcing Informationen. This was close enough to the Yiddish Informatia for Esther to push her way to the front of the line, disregarding the glares and loud protests of those in her way. She paid them no heed. Patience was no longer a part of her framework. It had been displaced by entitlement and self-preservation. The recent devastating turn of events, Tadeusz's action, his rejection, and such a public spurn of her, of them, of all their plans, had shaped an impossibly conceived scenario. Esther's one priority now was Esther. She repeated her request to the man behind the counter three times. Each time, she enunciated every syllable more precisely, then more slowly, but colored by rising frustration. The official, while clearly annoyed, noticed her youth and asked, Wie alt sind Sie? Alt, Esther thought quickly, alt, old, just like in my language. Although the other words made no sense, she correctly assumed he was asking her age. Zibitzen, she said. The man shrugged his shoulders, rolled his eyes, and turned to help the person next in line. Esther leaned over and grabbed the pen on his desk. In clear, thick lettering, she wrote the numbers one and seven on her palm. Standing on the tips of her shoes, she stretched her left arm high and held it up close to his face. With a snort, he reached into a pile under his desk and thrust a piece of paper in Esther's expectant hands. She looked intently at the page's Gothic script and line drawing of a building. This must be a place for young people to stay, she deduced, for next to a name and address, 16 through 22 was printed. A map of the area with a large X seemed to mark its location. Expressing no appreciation, Esther turned quickly, jostled the three people beside her, and ventured out into her first metropolis, a location so far away from all she had ever known as her meager resources enabled, a place with an assurance of anonymity and seclusion. If she could still muster gratitude for anything, it would be for this. 
And in the only way anguish can be subdued, if not entirely vanquished, Esther never stopped moving during those first self-exiled months. She couldn't. She could not allow herself to sit idle, not even for a few minutes, for if she did, memories of him, of them, of what was, would deluge her mind. Emotions that she now strained to destroy or deny ever existed would take over, and she would be rendered helpless, powerless, as she had been, and as she promised herself, herself she would never be again. She devoted, herself, she devoted her time to establish, establishing a formula for sustenance. Sewing was her foundation. While she strove to grasp the rudiments of German speech, her willpower propelled her to walk up and down the streets of Köln seeking work. She entered every dress boutique and tailor shop she could find with samples of her handiwork as calling cards. Schauenzi, look, she ordered those she met, holding up one of her tasteful blouses for inspection. The caliber of her skill and artistry supplanted language barriers. She was rewarded with small assignments from four tailors after just two weeks. Basic tasks, shortening a dress and repairing a pants cuff, were soon replaced by more complex responsibilities, for her mastery was revealed in the simplest exercise. Her stitches were precise, her hems and seams were even, and the presentation of each project was flawless. Stitching, basting, pleating, hemming, altering, darning, tucking, grading, embellishing, blocking, mending. These activities in nature only did breathing for Esther. Daily she sewed from the first hint of light to its last shadow to ensure her new clients received the quality work of which she alone was capable. No matter if her eyes burned, her neck strained, or her fingers ached without respite. Here in the windowless room, cramped by a single bed, rickety table, rough wooden chair and hot plate at the noisy, dilapidated youth hostel, Esther's stoic nature took root, growing deeper and thicker by each day's passing. She barely spoke except as needed to secure a sewing assignment, purchase necessary supplies, or tell one of the other residents to quiet down. It was a raucous building filled with too many young people, constant comings and goings, stair stompings, door slammings, and shouting. For much of the day, with her focused concentration on work, she was able to ignore any distractions. Such sounds were common to someone who had grown up in a home with 12 siblings. But when she couldn't, Esther found her nerves rattled, her posture tested. At these instances, she forbade the pent-up tears behind each eye to fall and squashed all but the most basic thoughts if one dared enter her head. After darkness fell, she spent the better part of the night trudging along the riverfront. In 1923, Kern was a charist girl palette of grays and blacks with a few patches of deep brown or the darkest blue breaking through the visual monotony. Most structures housed three stories, a few had four or even five. Although some were stout like marshmallows and a handful of others were lean as poles, each was indistinguishable in design, color, and pattern from its neighbor. Esther faded easily into this cityscape, apart from the occasional street lamp illuminating her face's stony glaze. On these walks, Esther contemplated how long it would take the cold, fast-moving Rhine to, fall, to swallow the torment that she, as yet, could not fully ignore. The memory refused to dissipate every feather, overcast, and edging stitch in her simple white dress, the posies in her hands, 
family and friends gathered in the town center, their excited chatter overlaid by klezmer music as the musicians frolicked, and she standed, standing unaccompanied under their tenderly crafted huppa, waiting until too much time had passed, until she could no longer remain there, alone. Surely the weight of Tadeusz's abandonment would supersede her ability to swim. And now, turning to chapter four to give you a taste. Thank you. <laughs> Just a little bit more. So that, that gives you a taste of the female protagonist, Esther. Um, and just a little bit, I want to introduce Ganesha in first person. Chapter four, Om. A represents the waking state, U, the dreaming state, M, the state of deep sleep. Om, in its entirety, followed by a moment of silence, represents the Shanti, the peace beyond understanding. Om Shri Ganeshaya Nama, praise to Lord Ganesha. I am Ganapati, son of Shiva and Parvati, Lord Ganapati, Lord of the Ganas, the celestial ones who watch over all, protect all. I am Vignahara, remover of obstacles. I am Siddhipriya, bestower of wishes and boons. Bodhanat, god of wisdom. Sharup, lover of beauty. Undanda, nemesis of evils and vices. And I am Kavesha, master of poets. I have 108 names. Most know me by Ganesha, Ganesh, god of the people. But truly, sadly, most do not know me at all or even acknowledge my very existence. There are countless stories, legends really, describing how I came into being, explaining my unique form, part, hum part human, part elephant. Some say I came through my mother's loins, others through her mind, that I came of a wish, a desire, to bring harmony and prosperity to all who reside here, calm. But I came through a sound, a sound so pure and clear and true, it has been known so far to only a very few. Om was my birth canal. And I came out dancing at the first flicker of dawn, dancing with a joy and a passion and a freedom not yet to be matched. I long for partners in my movements, but the time has not yet arrived. So I dance for universality, for unity, for the supreme God force present within all things, within all. I smile broadly, ecstatically. When I dance, I dance for all, as I am here for all. I am here for you. I have been here a long time, and I know I must re remain here longer still, for this is the Kali Yuga, and I am needed here now more than ever, for this is the period of the greatest, darkest evil of man unto man, the time when avenues of possibility and opportunity and hope appear to be cut off with only despair and desperation emerging in one's path. But truly, this is only an illusion. It is all an illusion. Yet I remain visible to those willing to see me, to let, them, to let me guide them on. Esther saw me, although she as yet does not know who I am or why I'm here for her. Deep within her, she recognized me and carried me forward to accompany her, to support her, to help her triumph over that which took place and that which is to come. This is the Kali Yuga, and the destruction and horror that lies in wait for her will be more immense than the human mind can fathom, more than the celestial ones could conceive. 
and we remain in the darkest part of that night when even the stars sleep, when the forces of ignorance are in full bloom and the subtle faculties of the soul are obscured. The depth of Kali's rage strikes each corner of the globe and can strike in the very core of one's life, testing heart, testing faith, as with Tadeusz. Ah, Kali, the black one, the dark one, Kali Ma, is the mother, the goddess of destruction and dissolution, but she alone commands transition. Thank you. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to cry. Oh, <laughs> now I'm really going to cry. Hi. So that's a taste. <laughs> Gives you an idea of this little thing I had in my back pocket for 18 years. <laughs> um, so Q&A. Any cues? <laughs> Any questions? Is it all? Is it? Yes, Aaron. Where did it come from? That's one of the, imagination is one of the mysteries of the ages. Uh, so there are many sparks for this. A key spark is that in the early 80s, um, after my mother's mother passed, my grandmother, uh, who was always this very mean, nasty human. Uh, at the family lunch, uh, my Tante Tanka came from Berlin, and we, were, we finally start, you know, at a funeral, you say all the nice things, and then afterwards, you start speaking truth. And finally, one of my cousins said, but what about that mean woman? And uh, my Tante Tanka said, well, you know, why don't you? And we all said, well, you know, the war, she lost her kids, her husband died, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, she said, no. When she was 17 years old, she was in her shtetl in Poland, standing under the chuppah, anticipating her beloved would come, and they were going to get married, and he had left with the richest girl in the shtetl. And um, from that point forward, she's only 17, it made her stone and mean. But it also made her a survivor. So um, that was kind of the spark where I thought, now that's an interesting story to tell, never intending to be a creative writer. But there are a few people in here. <laughs> over there, who um, insisted otherwise. And so that was one half of the spark. But the, the other part was completely me and my longtime love and fascination with all things Eastern. And I knew that if I was going to tell this story, I had to couch it not with just an omniscient narrator, but a Hindu god. And here it is. <laughs> and really, it, I had to honor me as much, you know, it's not a biography in any way. I mean, honestly, my grandmother never spoke about her experiences in the war. My mother never spoke about her experiences in the war. So uh, this was all fiction, or not, as the case may be, because is fiction really fiction? But that is how it came about.
basically. That's the short version. <laughs> yeah, Peter. Before I started writing? The, uh, I did incredible research, both from the eastern end and from the western end. I spent, there was one summer, one very, very difficult, painful summer. I spent eight to ten hours a day at the Shoah Foundation at USC watching um, first-person stories. Fortunately, none of my characters end up in a camp. I hope I'm not. Um, <laughs> but so just, so that was very deep research. But uh, so that was one. And the Eastern, which was a lot more fun for me, uh, particularly, I mean, I studied the whole Hindu pantheon in many ways, specializing, of course, in Ganesha. And I read academic books, I read historic books, I read fiction, I read memoirs, and my favorite thing was reading children's books. I think after reading the big global esoteric stuff, it was fabulous to read children's books about the deities, about Ganesha, about the whole culture, because it really distilled in a very clear, wonderful way so I, uh, I spent a lot of time researching. And I mean, because honestly, you know, I felt I had to get it right. Most especially because it's not my culture. So I really had to honor the culture. And I'm really proud of what came out. <laughs> yeah, Janice. And I have to say clearly, because most people know him as the remover of obstacles, but few know that he's also the one who puts obstacles in your path so you get on the right track. And that's really critical. So it's, it's a double-edged sword because you're going, wait a minute. I was just the vessel. Quite honestly, <laughs> I don't know how people feel about this, but truly, I was the vessel. Have, have I was chosen. Have you had I don't know. We have to talk about that. Yeah, probably. Thank you. Thank you. Truly, this book is not about being Jewish or being Hindu. It's about being human, and that's critically important to me. It's really a story about human beings. The universality of a person being dumped, be it as dramatic as at the altar or not being asked for the prom or whatever, is, it's universal, no matter what culture, what country, or whatever. So I feel, personally, this story is very universal. And, and I'm really proud of that. And the story is about love. <laughs> <laughs>
the essence of love which human beings experience. So. Such silence. Yes, ma'am. Yes, third, first person. He is third person and first person. And did you make that up? And how did you dare speak in the voice of a god? <laughs> Was he in me? I did. I don't know truth about that. <laughs> <laughs> Says one of my neighbors. There, there, there are a lot of neighbors here. How dare I? It was really interesting. Okay, I'll tell you one of my the best compliments I got early, early on, and Maya's here, Maya Danzinger. Uh, I was on a retreat in Molokai, I think eight days. We were there, and over the course of the eight days, you know, we would write, people would read, and et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to the culminating dinner, and it was really lovely. And at the dinner, one of the fellow authors, I don't know, maybe there were 15 of us, excuse me, came up to me and said, you know, I've been meaning to ask you all week, when did you become a Hindu and why? And I said, I'm not Hindu. And she looked at me and totally flabbergasted and said, what do you mean you're not Hindu? Then how could you write like that? And I went, yes, I did it. It's, I think you don't have to be something to be something. I think you do your research and you honor and you respect and I honestly, you know, this can sound very woo-woo, but those of you who know me know the layers of woo-woo there are. This wasn't my choice. <laughs> there, there were many people in this room who knew the depth of my resistance in terms of creative writing. I mean, I've always been a writer. I've always been a really good writer. I've been published as a writer for, I don't know, 30 years, but business writing. But this was not my idea. But I surrendered. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. Andrea was there then. So Andrea was in the early writing classes, and she heard this come about. You think? <laughs> painful and there are, there are other doulas in the room who were kicking me for years before saying you're a writer you're a writer and like no well yeah I'll write I could write anything but I'm not gonna do creative fiction and you, you know you get to a point where you just have to do what you have to do so how's that anybody else to cover it Oh, Jane. Jane and then Terry. I'm sorry? Gary Leonard. And Terry? What surprised you the most? I think how much I love doing the research. Even the most painful at the Shoah Foundation, it was just fascinating. Actually, I could say too, early, early, early on, 
I think I was in my 20s, I would often kind of be hired by artists to write Guggenheims or some other fellowship for them. And I found that I was really, really good at listening to them, distilling what they're saying, and write the way they would write if they could be a good writer. And so maybe that was kind of training for this because I took on, I took on a big guy. He's a really, <laughs> I mean, he's a really big guy. And I just knew I couldn't screw it up. So you'll read the book and you'll see. Thank you. Head up to the front, get yourself a copy of Guest House for Ganesha, and then also head over to the website, guesthouseforganesha.com, you guys. One more time, Judith Teitelman. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.